0: I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you live, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. On air, on The Farm Report every week, we talk about agriculture and food production Um, off air. I am the executive director of the Heritage Radio Network, and we've got a jam-packed show for you today, so we're going to jump right in. We are on the line with Sarah Brito. Sarah is the executive director of Chefs Collaborative, and she's going to share with us um, a little bit more about the collaborative and a really exciting event that they have coming up. Sarah, thanks for jumping on a call. Hi, Erin. Thanks so much for having me. So you're calling in from uh, Colorado, correct? I
2: am, Boulder, Colorado.
1: Awesome. So for folks who aren't familiar with the collaborative's work, maybe you can give us uh, the quick rundown.
2: Sure. Um, Chefs Collaborative is a national network of chefs and food professionals who care about sourcing, cooking, and serving better food and who want to create a better food system. Um, I like to think of it um, truly as a community of people who care about our food. um, And whether you're a member of the Collaborative or a donor or a friend, we're all working to inspire and educate and celebrate those chefs who truly care about how they source their food.
1: Awesome. Well, I have to say, I'm a huge fan and a member of the Collaborative. Thank you. um, So, you know, in the Farm Report in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be kind of kicking off a short series looking at meat and meat production um, in anticipation of the Slow Food Meat Conference, which is going to be happening out in the Colorado area later this June. Um, And so I definitely was interested to see you guys have a really cool event happening here in New York city that has a meat focus. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about why you guys chose to, to focus on meat for your, your New York city event and how folks can learn a little bit more about that and maybe grab some tickets.
2: Sure. Well, I think producing and meat producing and eating meat is really at the center of the conversation right now around sustainability and chefs, and food professionals are really powerful change agents and that the choices that they make around their menus um, especially have the power to transform much more than just food. So um, at the same time that meat is at the center of the conversation, there's a lot of confusion around the issues and what do people need to know? What are the matters that really surround meat um, that will help chefs and the general public, um, decide what they should be sourcing, cooking, and serving. Um, So we're really excited about Meat Matters. Um, It's at the Food Network Kitchen in Chelsea Market, and so it's a really rare opportunity to explore the Food Network Kitchen to learn about the issues surrounding producing and eating meat, uh, which includes vegetables and grains, I might add, and to um, mingle and connect with some of the leading change makers in the culinary world.
1: I know you guys have such a jam packed, like star studded lineup. Can you give us some highlights on who's going to be cooking with you?
2: Absolutely. Um, we're really excited that one of the founders of Chefs Collaborative, uh, founding member Chef Rick Bayless um, of Frontera in Chicago, is going to be joining us. Uh, we're also really excited to have Chef Steven Sterdzuski. Of the renowned, uh, Cochon, um, and Butcher and Pesh in New Orleans. And then, of course, um, you can't throw an event in New York without New Yorkers. Um, we're really excited to have, uh, Chef Howard of Gramercy Tavern and Chef Bill Telepan of Telepan in New York, um, as, as well as others, um, and the support, um, of Brooklyn brands like New York Distilling Company, uh, serving signature cocktails, uh, as well.
1: Awesome. Sarah, thank you so much for uh, jumping on to give us a little bit of an update, and we'll definitely be in touch more as we continue this meat conversation. I know you're on the steering committee for the Slow Food event out in Colorado, so lots more to come on that, and, and appreciate you sharing uh, some lowdown on the upcoming Meat Matters event.
2: Thanks so much, and if people want tickets, they can find them at chefscollaborative.org slash meatmatters.
1: Awesome. Well, jumping right into the meat of our show... Hardy har-har. Uh, we, are, we are in this studio with a very special guest um, talking about another um, area that's been getting like a fair amount of news coverage and, and, a, and a topic that we've talked about a little bit on this show, which is bees... And beekeeping. We're joined by uh, Rodney Dow. Rodney is the chair of the development committee up at Glenwood, and he also is the CEO and president of the Dow Corporation. Uh, And prior to that was a professor of agriculture at the State University of New York in Farmingdale. So definitely lots of interesting history there and lots of great bee talk buzz, if you will. Okay, I'm going to stop. Rodney, welcome to the studio. Uh,
3: Thank you, Aaron. Nice to be here.
1: Um, well, we connected via um, our work at Glenwood. Um, I, I work with the team up there sitting on their advisory council, and we got to chatting in a little reception about your great passion for bees and beekeeping, which will form the bulk of our show. But before we get there, maybe you can give folks a little bit of a background on, on Glenwood and, and who they are and, and their important work.
3: Uh, Glenwood's work is per- primarily we're focused on the Hudson Valley, and uh, our tagline is we are putting working at keeping farming thriving in the Hudson Valley. And we have a number of programs that have been going on, uh, Keep Farming. Uh, we also have uh, the CIDER. We've really started the CIDER uh, Awareness in the Hudson Valley and CIDER Week. And we continue work with apprenticing farmers, and our big project is that we have going as an incubator project. It's up in New Pauls, New York, and we're getting farmers, young farmers, started in farming.
1: That's awesome. I'm, I'm a big fan. We're actually going to be joined by your director of programming, Sarah Grady, a little bit later this month, so folks should definitely stay tuned for that episode. Well, what about bees and beekeeping? Um, how, how did you gain entree to, to the world of bees?
3: Well, I'll try to make a quick story of it, but it goes back a long time ago. Um, I was fortunate to be spending a lot of time with an incredible grandfather who was a true Renaissance man. And when he passed away, my life in many ways ended. And uh, to my mother's credit, bless her heart, she got me involved in the 4-H. And from the 4-H, I got involved in entomology. And then I remembered my grandfather kept bees. And the next step was I ended up at a uh, Suffolk County Beekeepers Association meeting and uh, I found a surrogate grandfather who volunteered to teach me about bees. His name was Ben Soponis. He arrived here in the United States uh, after World War II. He was a commercial beekeeper in Lithuania. And the greatest thing that he bestowed upon me was he was a real old world beekeeper. And I learned things from him, this is back in the 60s, when uh, we're learning these things now, you see it written about. But these are old ways and how they kept bees and used natural ways to figure out what they're doing.
1: Uh, Well, yeah, no, it's interesting. It's like we talk about that a lot on this show, how there is a tendency these days to think that we've, like, invented and discovered everything. And, you know, often you come to find out that, like, not only is that not the case, but lots of people have been doing it for a really long time. Well, I know here at Roberta's, actually, they had a couple of hives up on the roof. And I was just chatting with Melissa, the gardener, and she said, you know, it was just... too much for the neighborhood, so they're, they're not going to do the bees again this year because people got a little too nervous and there was some kind of wonky press around it. You weren't afraid of bees as a young boy? Like, did, you didn't have the fear factor? Was not an issue for you?
3: Um, uh, I, I never had a fear factor, but it's not fun getting stung. Uh, the first sting still hurts as much as the ones I get thousands of stings later, uh, and that never happens, but it's a mindset that you you, you have to adapt and it's part of beekeeping, and uh, when you work with them, you're careful about how you work with them, and, and you pick the time of the day, and the weather, it all has an influence on how little, you may not, how little, you, you, you sometimes never get stung at all, and I work on the bees, the only thing I wear is a veil, I use my hands, my bare hands, and and even when I get stung, I know I just go, oh, I'll just take a deep breath and let it out and pass on. It uh, doesn't last forever, this sting. Uh, but it's good for you, and it keeps you healthy, keeps your joints lubricated, and uh, stimulates uh, your metabolism.
1: Getting stung does? Absolutely. Oh, so some uh, you know strategies for, for solving those ailments. Like, <laughs> like, it reminds me of the like, beauty thing where they have like the leeches on your face where you're kind of oh. like, really? That's a thing?
3: Well, we have apiculture, and apiculture is using a a lot of the things that the bees produce, which are tinctures, which is the propolis, royal jelly, pollen, and also including bee stings to um, uh, uh, lubricate the joints, and sometimes you can help people with arthritic shoulders and arms to overcome that. Uh, Obviously, you have to test them to make sure they're not allergic. That's the one downside. And I just want to go back to what you're saying, the bees here got a little bad press. Uh, Unfortunately, People talk about bees and they categorize everything which is hornets and wasps into the factor of calling them bees. Bees are nectar collectors. When they're outside the hive, they have no interest to sting you. They will not sting you. You either have to touch them and try to pick them up and handle them, which you wouldn't do, or step on them, which often happens when you have a lawn with white clover and kids are running around with bare feet or young people, they step on them and they get stung but outside the hive, they don't stay.
1: They're not. Well, that was funny. We were just watching the clip of President Obama and the Rose Garden reading the, where the wild things are to a group of kids and, and a couple of bees started buzzing around and, and the kids were really going crazy with, with panic. Um, but, but obviously not, not the case with you. You were kind of introduced by a very kind of gentle and guiding hand. Um, so maybe we should start with folks by talking a little bit through the beekeeping process. Um, so, Uh, if maybe you you were going to school me on how to get started and some things to think about, like, where do we, where is it like a jumping off point in in kind of thinking about bees and beekeeping? Okay.
3: Um, At Glenwood, I've taught classes several times where we are, we, and each time I change them up and how I deliver the information. And I started a new one just this year and it looks like it's uh, I like the way it started out. We're doing a three part series and uh, we're talking about opening the hives up, and if you're getting to starting a hive, uh, how to work with packaged bees, or what they call nukes. There's two ways you can receive your bees, and how to get them off thriving and growing within the hive. Uh, because the number one game with raising bees is keeping the population up. You want to help the bees build the population up. Because they have one bugaboo they have to fight, and that's the varroa mite
1: the varroa mite. Varroa mite. Okay. It's
3: um uh it is what causes the major problem with colony collapse disorder in bees in this country. And uh it, the interesting part of it, we have a name for it. It's called PMS okay. Uh, okay. and it's par- parasitic mite syndrome. And what happens with these mites if you let them get out of control in your hive, uh they they weaken the hive because they suck the fluids out of the the bees, the worker bees, the young bees. And basically they take their immune system and bring it down and it's just like if you were partying every night of the week and going out and not eating properly and not eating good food and which happens and getting run down you're yeah. going to be susceptible to everything right and the pathogens are always present in the hives and around the hives and what happens these bees start to collapse but it doesn't it, The amazing thing about it is what happens you build up critical mass with the, uh, the with the mites and it actually triggers a reaction in the hive, and then they collapse as part of it. There's another thing with oils, which is a pesticide, but that's a whole other story now. I, I won't go there. But to get started with bees, getting back to your question, I always say to people, is: first of all, it's expensive. To, if, it costs you several hundred dollars if you want to get really started buying clothes and covering with gear, all the tools you need, hives, and material, and so forth, and then buying the hives. Bees have gotten to be very expensive. You're talking around $120 to $160 a hive just to get the physical bees. So I always say, find somebody you can apprentice with. Mm -hmm. The biggest reason being, and let's go back to the stinging, it's great, the bees are incredibly interesting, you'll never stop learning about them. But what happens, you get out there and you get stung once, and they do hurry. Because the honeybee has is one of the only bees that has a barb on its stinger so when it stings you it stays inside you if you get stung by a yellow jacket which everybody calls bees uh, they sting you multiple times they can sting and pick it up and sting you again and uh, they're the aggressive ones that you see later in the season in the summer that people when they get stung they said oh it's those bees and uh, that's the bad rap they get so i always say get out there work with somebody you can cover yourself up Really well, and you may go six months, a year, year and a half, but eventually you will be stung right. working with bees. So, it's you either have to accept it. It's it's always like I said, it's always painful, but that's the minimal price you pay. Like the cost of doing business. The cost of doing bees, and if you if it fits, and it and you go to it like a fish to water you'll it's not a it's just move on it's just wonderful i mean you just because the knowledge that you can learn and the interesting things you can do with bees and, and eventually you get honey from them you can make your tinctures to keep you healthy and and i do that part in the classes that we do and uh, you end up with having a, a lifetime of learning
1: Okay, so I, um, like, post-apprenticeship, obviously, in my imaginary Aaron Fairbanks beekeeping world, I have decided that, like, this is something I'm really into. So I'm looking at getting kind of gear being, like, the clothing that you might want, which would include, I think we see from the movies, like, the nets that go over your face and some type of, like, gloves or other protective stuff. And that sounds like there's a range there, depending on, like, your level of comfort. Because you said you were you just use the, the the face mask
3: face mask uh yes that's correct because when i don't want to get stung in the eye that's could be create a problem the other thing is if you ever get stung in your ear or in your nose it is the most painful place to get stung okay. for some reason it's you know how you get you bump your nose or yes. you know, in you feel that. the pain well when you get stung there you can kind of get what i'm talking about um so uh what I recommend is get a veil. You can buy these whole outfits, and it's a ex- lot of expense to right. get it started, which covers from head to toe and uh, boots and or, or wraps around your ankles that tuck that in. Um, what I say to people is get a white sh- long sleeve shirt. Right. White's a good color. Do not wear black around the bees. Bees do not like the black, color really? black. no. I, I sometimes think that um, uh, they probably think it might be be a bear <laughs> I don't know got like, call- like a
1: long evolutionary history
3: <laughs> and I never thought about that until one day I happened to go wanted to look at one of my hives I had absolutely nothing on no veil just and I had a black t-shirt on and uh, I opened up the hive and the hive just immediately just elevated into a kind of aggressive uh, um, mode and pushed and jumped on me and then they were I got a few stings from it so, so no black, uh, no got black. it. So white. <laughs> so you need a white shirt and you need a veil and the gloves that um, you can buy. Gloves, the best kind of ones that are made out of goat skin because they're flexible. Reason I do not wear gloves is that I can't get a good feel of bees and and when you're pulling out frames. And at times, if I want to move a bee around, if I see the queen and I and I want to put her back into the hive. I'll just pick her up with my hand. I cradle her in her back and set it over and, and put her down.
1: That's an advanced move, guys. Don't be trying that.
3: That's correct. <laughs> but, uh, so that's really, uh, what it is, and, and, uh, just start working with them. And, uh, this weekend I'll be working up at Glenwood. Uh, I haven't opened the hives yet. This is one of the most exciting times of the year because the, the whole point is to interpret the hive and read it. And that's a real good learning time. And, uh. I told everybody to bring some veils and some if they want not wear gloves or just keep your hands in the pocket and observe.
1: Okay, so I want to come back to that, like, seasonal component because I think that is, like, such an interesting part of the bee story. But um, before we move on from there, so once you're, you're kind of physically geared out, um, the other kind of components to starting a hive is, is okay, the bees, which we'll come back to. But but how do you build a home for the bees? I mean, can I go on, like, you know, modernfarmer.com and buy, a, like, a, a bee house? Like, what is the terminology and the, like, thing about creating the space for the actual bees
3: that's a a good question important thing is that in order to have your bees thrive you have to have a good home and first of all you have to think about location the best direction you're going to set your hive is south the slightly southeast because what stimulates the bees to come out of the hive is temperature and sunlight so you want to be focusing them in that direction and you also want to have what I call a bee line. The, the bees come out <laughs> of the hive and they go up and then take off. So, And that can extend out to 20 feet in front of the hive. So you need to have a good beehive uh, or bee line. Bee
1: line. And, so and that's it, where that word comes from. That's where it comes from. It takes a
3: bee line. And, yeah. and, and even a hedge in front of it out 10 or 15 feet is good because they won't fly through the hedge. They'll soar up and it'll, go, it'll get them going straight up in the air. And then they'll disperse out to different directions. So there are a number of bee suppliers all over the country. You have um, you have Walter Kelly out of Kentucky, uh, a very really good operation. Uh, you have um, uh, Brushy Mountain, which is down in the Carolinas. You have Bitter Bee, which is up in New York State. And you can also find um, – uh, uh, just slipped my mind, but now I'll come back to it. But that's the primary ones that are out here to get the equipment. And you need to buy um, – if you call them up, most of them very helpfully, you need to start out with uh, – two supers, which are the boxes which contain 10 frames. Interesting thing about these beehives, they were uh, developed and invented by Lorenzo uh, Langstroth back in 1851. They have changed very little in that time, which is pretty amazing.
1: Well, that's like one of the things I was so fascinated to learn Uh, earlier this month, we had someone who runs a pollinator advocacy campaign on, and I had no idea that honeybees were not native to North America. Um, that was a, that was like a big surprise so like in the u.s at least in north america the you know our beekeeping tradition goes back to when exactly do you do you know
3: yes and that's a very good point that is very few people know that i would say very few but there's a lot of people that do not no, know
1: make me. me feel good they, yeah,
3: yeah feel I'm, good. I'm <laughs> so uh yeah they came over with the pilgrim pilgrims and they brought them here and uh they thrived there were no varroa mites and i when i was a young kid uh they would multiply they'd swarm i was catching swarms all the time i got my list on the on the cooperative extension service i never had to buy bees they i had my name as a list and i'd gone grab swarms when they were up in trees and i started a new colony and it was really easy and uh so um so the, so so keep, keeping the keeping that in mind the bees um can regenerate themselves mm-hmm. and uh we uh, i continued to I still continue to gather swarms to keep thing, keeps the hives going. In fact, I try to keep uh, recycling my bees and splitting them. There's a technique for splitting these bees. So I hope that...
1: Well, okay, so I want to come back to that, too. Gosh, there's so much good stuff here. Right. Um, so... Um, where we were talking about the, the boxes, which you called what again?
3: There's, they're called supers. They're called supers. You need two large ones, but Oh, getting back to the suppliers, they can help you through this. Yeah. Um, there's only one thing that's really important. Uh, they always try to give you plastic frames because you don't have to put them together. You don't have to make them. Mm -hmm. You just stick them in the hive. Uh, the unfortunate thing is, bees don't really take well to them. They don't like it. And one of the things they have to do is, they get these frames that have little uh, hexagon uh, uh, indentations in the center of the frame, and they build out the cells. Mm-hmm. And they they slow at doing it. They? they just do not like the plastic.
1: They don't like the plastic.
3: The ones I use, and what most beekeepers will use are one hundred percent beeswax. Oh. And you, but you have to put these together, and it takes work. And this is where I go back to say, "Start with somebody and apprentice with somebody, and uh, we are going to have a workshop where we're going to just make frames because it's important to have good frames to make a lot of bees
1: okay, so for folks who um, have never seen a super box, can you describe like the the size and the dimensions
3: sure <clears throat> it's about nine inches by eleven and three quarter inches. there are ten what they call removable frames they slide down in the slot and they have a little hookup where they lay down and uh, they that's the removable high frames uh, prior to that the only thing they had was skeps and they're the old pictures uh, with a round oval um, straw uh, little. Uh, how can I describe, they call them skeps or straw skeps, or little mounds where they used to catch bees, in. and you'll see it in the old, old movies or old photos. Okay. Uh, that was the only way to catch, uh, get honey. And then what you do is you have them sitting on a flat stone or a piece of wood, and then you just turn the hive over and cut out a little bit of honey when you needed it. But you could never, you destroy the frame you destroy, or you destroy the, the wax. With a removable hives where you can go in, you can take the honey out, you can extract the honey uh-huh. and put the frames back in, and the bees start filling it up again.
1: So in my head, it's like it kind of uh, when I think about it, it, looks like some kind of like large like filing system essentially, where like the the frame is like a, you're sticking like a file in, and you can pull, you can completely remove that, and and what you have there is the the like whatever the building material of the frame was. So it sounds like it can be plastic or, or beeswax, and then. That's where the bees actually build the honeycomb and where the honey is?
3: They take your frames, they pull uh-huh. out the combs, and in the center is where they'll have the brood, which is the baby bees being hatched. They, they're a complete metamorphosis. Uh, they go egg larva and, uh, and uh, uh, pupa stage, and then they hatch out into to adult. And they have to maintain temperature inside the hive of the bees. They try to keep it right around 96.8. Okay. Our temperature is ninety eight point six. Bees are ninety six point eight, and uh, they they center the brooding chamber in the center of the hive, where you get your your honey is more on the outer frames. So there's ten frames, and generally speaking, you'll have the two on the either left and right side. You'll have two frames that are predominantly all honey. Uh, when you're raising bees, as they build the population up and they're ready to expand, you just keep it adding on adding on supers. Which are you then you go to a next size which is called a medium size super, which is easier to handle because you take a full large super, which is that square box, which mm-hmm. is a use of breeding if you can you can make honey in them, but they weigh about ninety pounds. And okay. it's a lot of weight to handle.
1: Yeah. All right, so we've got our gear, we've got our super, we've got our frames, and then the bees you can actually order. I know you like you listed a couple of places. I actually Gosh, it was a number of years ago brought a a group of like a, a hive starter kit um, uh-huh. down to the city for um, for a group I think who was working over at just Food, which is like a social justice oriented food organization here in the city, to start their hive and it looked like um, you know it was basically like a a very thin um, rectangle. Uh, box with screens on both sides full of bees that I'm no joke I like put it underneath my um, car seat like it was like right behind me on the truck and then every once in a while I'd like, pull it out and like spritz it with a little water but that was like the bee delivery mechanism is that like normal Th- that's or? called
3: package bees and Packaged that is bees. the most common way to move them around and uh, I in part of this beginning class I showed the easiest way to get these into your hive that's the kind of the fun part and uh and the to get them in there and be happy, and they have to release this queen the queen 's in a little package separately, but uh, that 's kind of the fun part, uh, getting started and making sure everything is up and running. Uh, one thing I just want to jump back you know, the bees uh, were brought here by the pilgrims, and uh, they are not the most efficient pollinators. We have many natural pollinators, however, because they have an ability to build up their, their the population in the springtime very rapidly. Uh, the massive number of bees that can be produced with with honeybees compensates for their poor ability to pollinate plants.
1: Okay, so what they lack in efficiency, they make up for in volume. The total
3: total volume. And And that's why we have them here in this country.
1: Not to mention the honey, which we also like. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, we are going to take just a short break. And when we come back, we're going to kind of continue the the bee talk where uh, you're listening to the Farm Report. We're in the studio here with Rodney Dow. Hang tight. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Balloons by Jack Inslee. This is the Farm Report on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
1: And we are back, uh, continuing our bee talk with our resident bee expert Rodney Dow, who is visiting us um, from the Hudson Valley. So we talked through in the first part of the show, kind of some of the basic components of of getting started um, with a bee, a bee, a bee project, a beehive. What's a the beehive. right a beehive? Getting started with a beehive. So now we're there. Um, give us a sense like what is there like a time of year that makes sense to start and why and then aside from making sure that we have a good like beeline for the bees when we think and like we're placing them in a way that's going to be nice and warm and cozy what are other things that like bees like or don't like um that we should be thinking about or or that you think about when you're thinking about placement and, and and getting a new hive going
3: well, the first thing is 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 to start early and and um, get your hive together. You can. It's amazing what you can find on YouTube and how to assemble these. They give you instructions. I don't know who writes the instructions sometimes, so we all kind of know that. But
1: YouTube, with a grain of salt, always. Yeah, I
3: love YouTube to so figure out something. And uh, so look on YouTube. Um, I would, if you can, look around for a beekeeper that's been doing it for quite a while little interesting thing about beekeepers if you have a question and ask him he will tell you that is the it's absolutely the only way to do it and it's the same if you ask that same question to a hundred other beekeepers right so you have to the, the beekeepers have been around a while they kind of pretty strong about what they what they think, what you, their, what you what think you should they you is. should do it just this way yeah but there's, I don't think there's always one right answer, and I'm always looking to try new things and experiment to see if I can make things work just a little bit better. And I've been doing it for a very, very long time, and it's what keeps it really going and interesting. And sometimes it find, it, you find new ways, and I worked on creating a new way to install um, a package hive of bees where you don't even have to shake the bees. You, you can do them in about five minutes And so far, I have a 100% track record. And I should really take the time to write an article on it, but I haven't yet. But (laughs) It's a great way, but I love to show people how to do it because it's real easy and you don't have a lot of bees all over the place flying. So um, that's the one thing. Uh, So you you get your started early, build your boxes. If you can find someone to help you build the frames, you should. If you start out with wax frames, you're going to be challenged. But I've seen hives that survive. But the name of the game is to get the population up if you can. And uh, and that's pretty much. Then you get into the midsummer where um, you have anticipation. You want to do a way to check on my count. This is that little bugaboo that you have to maintain. And how do you? There's a number of ways to treat them. And how do you find out what your count is? And it's an estimation game. And and there again, you need help with right. somebody to do it. And uh, and then once you get going, you want to make sure that as you come into the fall, uh, that you have enough honey. Oftentimes, people who want to start on bees, the first thing they say is, "How much honey can I get out of it?" Right, right. And I say, uh, "You don't get any honey out of them. It's about the bees. It's not about you getting honey out of them." Because first-year bees take a long time to get established, and if you have, and, and a lot has to do with the weather, the temperatures, uh, a lot of rain. Do we have a good nectar flow? And these will have an effect on the overall population and building up of, of. Um, Honey in the hive over winter. So the first year, it's seldom I take honey from a new hive. I want to get them established and strong and thriving. That's our point. Then the next year, that's when you can crank out and make the honey. And it's techniques you have to do to help them stimulate their production and you make. You got to keep them from swarming, which you can do. But again, it's a lot of work. Working with bees, is, is just something that just clicks, and it's uh, it's it, it's a life long passion because you can always learn something new and and also the thrill of just seeing those bees and getting into them and looking at them and one of the things that I do when I go to a hive the first thing I do is I say to people before you go up in a hive you got to go and talk to your bees so so I get down by the entrance and I say hi girls I'm here because there's a lot they're all females in there and there's a few drones but and I say, hey, how are you doing today? I'm coming in. i got to check a few things. I will to make sure everything gets okay, and I won't stay too long, and I'm going to be careful. So, And I, then I look at Apprentice. I love doing this with Apprentice and say, see? Well, no, watch this. The hive will open it up. it will be really calm. And they kind of look at me like this guy is you know, I'm not playing <laughs> with a <the> full deck. <laughs> However, I said, then I kind of let him in on the secret. I said, they didn't understand a word I said to them. But what they did understand is me. They know me. They, feel, they didn't feel any anxiousness to my voice. And they, I was close to the hive where my f- smell was waffling in, and I come there all the time. I also try to wear the same clothes when I work in the bees. And at the end of the season, my coveralls, or my shirt I have, sometimes looks pretty nasty. But I don't change it because they know that smell. And then I open up the hives, and I try not to use a lot of smoke. We have a little smoker that we use to control the bees. Uh, it kind of calms them. They start getting a little antsy and start to get a little nervous. You smoke them a little bit, and what happens, they think, oh, my God, it's a fire. And they run to a cell, and they immediately fill their stomach up with honey. Uh, and what that does is that... They're fat and round, and they can't bend over. They have to arc their abdomen to sting you. So after they're filled up with food, it's like Thanksgiving dinner. you got too much food, you don't feel like, you know. Right. So it's the same thing. They fill up with honey, and they can't quite bend their tail. So, they, so you, they, you can have less bees stinging you. And so that's, you know, part of the fun. But I say to them, they know who I am. And if I have a group of people around me, and the bees are coming out of the hive, you may have one person where the bees are flying around their... Head and uh, they're the nervous person in in the uh, in the group because the bee, you extract when you get nervous, you, you emit odors that the the bees pick up and and they'll come and smell, check check out a little bit more.
1: Well, I feel like you always see in movies that like the beekeepers are always kind of portrayed as these kind of uh, almost guru esque figures of like calm and meditative like. You know presence and and that is because like you have to be chill to keep the bees chill basically
3: and I think that's even part of the fun uh is you're absolutely correct about that and um, one of the things that I talk about is that beekeeping is an art form if you're a commercial beekeeper, you cover yourself from head to toe, you wear leather gloves and you bing bang boom you're killing bees, squashing bees but it's it's an it's a numbers game you're too busy, and they don't have any it's that inner passion for these uh it's strictly money driven, and the commercial in the in the uh, keeper of bees side of this, where people who want to start out and keep their own bees, and some people may want to go into little production for themselves, but you can work with them. You work with them slowly. You work on them gently, and uh, you know, like I, I put on my note that I sent on my bee blast for this weekend is, I said, um, just bring a veil. And people asked me a few more questions. I got some feedback, and I said. If if it's calm, the weather's good, and the bees are happy, you don't have to worry about a thing. Right. Because as many times I work on them, I you know bare hands, all, you know all day long, and I never get stung. And I also work with a variety of bees that are somewhat gent, more gentle. More gentle. You. But the main thing is, you go in, you calm them down, you talk to them, you take your time, you think what you're doing, and just uh, handle them gently, and they will treat you nicely. Also, the ones that sting you the most are the adult bees that are the nectar collectors the one that goes out in the field and gets pollen and goes out and gets the nectar to make into honey and um, they're out foraging during the day so it's best to go out right around midday when the sun's warm and they're all out of the hive you just increased your populations by at least a third while they're out there gathering so you not have to deal with them so it's very important about timing timing no wind no rain right no chill
1: nothing to like aggravate them yeah. well and then so timing it sounds like here in the northeast if you're either starting a hive or as you mentioned earlier waking up a hive that kind of happens in the spring
3: yes it's we, we start it we try to start it right around april that's the best time to do it because uh we're having a very late season this year i haven't even packaged my hives and uh, unwrapped them like put them away for the winter uh Normally, I'm done in March, and here we are almost coming into the middle of April, and hopefully this weekend it's going to warm up and we'll, uh, we'll get in on them. Uh, so that's when you get them started. Uh, mid, in this midsummer, you're going to check for swarms and mite counts, and then I start in September, end, I mean, I'm sorry, end of August, getting ready for winter, making sure they have enough honey in the hive. If they don't, I will artificially feed them sugar water. A lot of people use high-fructose corn syrup, which would be something I would never do. You can buy that. Commercial beekeepers use high-fructose corn syrup. Um, But no, I use just regular white sugar and dilute it 50-50 with water. So, Simple syrup for bees. Yeah, simple syrup. And and I feed them. I have a a very interesting technique uh, to do it, very different than anybody has ever seen. Um, And uh, I do it real quickly. And I do actually five gallons at a time. Oh, wow. And wow. And a hive that's reasonably strong, they can consume that and get it into the hive um, in about five to six days, which is pretty amazing. And the next thing is do they ripen it. And when I say ripen it, what they have to do, when they put that nectar in those cells, they deme- uh, have to dehumidify the hive. And the way they do it is by fanning with their wings. And they have to dry it out because they have to raise the viscosity of the nectar to become honey because of it. And then when the vicosity is correct and they know this is it, they cap over the end of the cell. And that's very important because if it's what I call green honey where it hasn't been capped over and you go and extract that, that will ferment on you. And that naturally is how one of the most wonderful things we ever found was mead. is because ah, green honey got fermented, got fermented and had a wonderful drinking of the first alcohols in the world.
1: So green honey um, is basically, just to clarify, it's basically honey that hasn't kind of dehydrated enough essentially so the like water to, sh- to, to sh- sugar i mean it, that, it would be like your bricks ratio is that what you actually... that
3: is correct and okay. it gets that and, it, and and the viscosity gets high enough that's exactly correct and honey is the only natural food that never spoils now you can have it around for 10 years and you take it out it'll be very dark and it might have a little bit of a bitter taste but it's not poisonous or it won't get you sick
1: yeah
3: that, which is pretty amazing that's why it works so well in embalming. bombing in the what? They embalmed the Egyptians. Oh right, to, right. The <laughs> Egyptians when they like found the honey. Yes. Yeah. So.
1: Well, I remember when I was a kid, my my mother's father, my my grandpa, kept bees, and sadly he passed when I was ten, so I didn't have a, a lot of memories of that time. But like I remember like walking out to look at the hives. For, for me, it was from a distance. But we always had like a giant jar of honey. Uh, You know, like a a two gallon jar of honey, like in the cupboard at my house that would like, you know, change form throughout because it was around for a long time. (laughs) Right.
3: Well, one of the things that happens is that naturally as it sits, it starts to crystallize. And oftentimes people think, oh, it's crystallized. They, it, has, it starts to get funky in the bottom, and it's really just crystallization happening. And then they throw it out. There's nothing wrong with it.
1: Well, it'll change color. So and you it said starts it
3: to get changing colors. Most importantly, don't put your honey in the refrigerator because it accelerates crystallization. So put it in, put it in your cupboard. It won't spoil.
1: So what about when I when you buy honey, especially if you buy honey from like a more boutique establishment, you know it'll often be designated by season. There'll be spring honey or a, I feel like I usually see spring honey or fall honey. Mm-hmm. Um, is that like I mean, well, I guess it's kind of a two part question. Um, what I'm wondering is if if you're raising bees in the Northeast, you know you're impacted by the seasons where you essentially like hibernate the hives but if i'm raising bees in florida per se am i they never go into hibernation or
3: uh they slow down uh, they can they in cooling periods of time they will but they they kind of they'll come more year round. um that's why most of all the package bees come out of the south uh all the way up into georgia because they can produce bees for a much longer period of time um, what happens to the bees, people say, do they hibernate? Well, they don't hibernate, hibernate in the wintertime. They, what they go to is cluster. They pull in very, very, very tight, queens okay. in the center. And they just roll around through the hive. And uh, as they go through the hive, the ones that are chilled on the outside roll into the middle, and the ones in the middle keep coming up, and they do it in ultra-slow motion. Uh, and that's my bees. But getting back to the honey, when you buy honey in stores, it's important. The boutique honey can be very expensive, but it's worth every penny you spend because it's unprocessed and natural. Uh, what they do for commercially produced honey, see so have Sioux Bee or the Orange Blossom, that honey has been heated um, up above 160 degrees. It changes the molecular structure of the sugar molecule, and it retards crystallization. So it has longer shell- shelf life. Also, at the same time, because it's warm when they heat this up, they can push it through a filter, and they take out all the good parts, which is the pollen and uh, mm-hmm. that's inside uh, of the honey that floats around inside, which the honey is what the bees live on. We think honey bees live on honey. Well, they use the honey for carbohydrates, but like all of us, we, they need amino acids, they need vitamins, minerals, trace elements. That comes from the pollen. That's why it's nutritious eating pollen. Some people spoon it onto the cereal in the morning. Now, you can buy bee pollen in the health food stores. Uh, but primarily, natural honey has, when I produced the honey at Glenwood, all we do is decap it. I use uh, a screen that will keep out bee parts or, or wax, and the pollen goes through, and we sell our honey in a jar. That's, it it's, it's somewhat has a little bit of a cloud to it, and that's because it's loaded with pollen, which is the best part, and the nutritious part of honey, which really what you should eat. That also coincides a lot of people feel that if they eat local honey, they can reduce their spring allergies. Um, it seems to work. Um, uh, at, when i was at SUNY farmdale i wanted to do a grant on do the project and evaluate that but it got turned down because they were worried about people having allergic reactions with the pollen which really didn't make any sense but
1: sometimes <laughs> it's
3: you can't educate people
1: it <laughs> was like what comes like what comes first like the cart or the horse right. well um, obviously tons more uh, honey talk to, to be had, which is why I'm so happy we're going to be able to have you back to do uh, a second part of, of this honey series. Um, unfortunately, today we are out of time, um, so we're going to ask folks to hold tight with your ton, your your honey questions. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to uh, tweet us or, or shoot us an email, it's Aaron underscore Fairbanks or Aaron at Heritage Radio Network, um, and Rodney is going to be coming back. And, um, a little bit later in the month to kind of continue the, the honey conversation. But I feel like we've made some good progress today. Thank you so I, much. Thank you, Harn. Uh, this has been another episode of The Farm Report. You can find this, like all 39 of our weekly shows, uh, for free. Uh, download via iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio. We are, of course, in the middle of our very first Kickstarter campaign. The goal is to bring you a brand-new website – So that when you visit www.heritageradionetwork.org, you're not confused and overwhelmed by choices, but delighted with the array of great food, drink, and agriculture talk at your fingertips. So please consider becoming a backer of our Kickstarter campaign today or sometime before May 12th when the campaign ends. And for more information, uh, just visit that website. Thank you so much for tuning in and keep on listening.